creation. May we honor your great name and give you the praise due your name. May we represent you well to the world that all might know our gracious King. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring forth your kingdom in our world, at our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, through our families and in our hearts. May your glorious will be manifest all around us that we might find peace on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Without you, Father, we have no good thing and are reliant upon you for all we have. In your mercy, please provide for us what we require to survive this day and the next. For only in you do we live and move and have our being. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our faults are many, Father, both apparent and hidden within. And we confess to you our iniquity, asking by your mercy you might restore us again to the joy of your salvation. Afford us the strength and humility, Father, to relent from found faults in those we encounter and interact with each day, that like Christ, we would keep no record of wrongs, recalling all that you have graciously looked past in us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are utterly surrounded on all sides by temptation and hounded by the spirits of evil in this present age. We are utterly dependent upon your spirit for deliverance and ask of your grace to grant us safe passage through this day and the next. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of you, Father God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you alone be glory forever. Amen. All right. Thank you, Jared. Um, all right. We'll go ahead and walk our kids back to the kids' room now. Uh, we're only having one room for today and possibly for the rest of summer, just as a heads up. That doesn't mean that uh, there won't be a room for any of the kiddos. It just means we're going to be condensing them together. So just straight back into the foyer. Um, and then, of course, if you have a child that you'd like to take to the nursery independently as like a parent, uh, you're free to do so. So there we go. Okay. I want to start by talking about water. A little bit. Let's talk about water. And I've done this before. It's been a little while since I've done this, but you know, I kind of like I like the the feedback. I like sending my voice out and then hearing voices in return. It's like it's like talking to a cave or to a person, I guess. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. When we think about water, we think about water. Like let's let's maybe let's even stick biblically. Where are some areas where we see water? playing a very significant role. Zach. Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Great, Zach. Ten points. All right, Luke. Baptism. Good. You didn't raise your hand, though. Minus ten points. Luke. Uh, Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Angel. Jordan River. Absolutely. Red Sea. Yeah. The river flowing out of the new creation. Very good. 
Okay, yeah, a little eschatological on me. Okay. Um, a couple more? I don't know. This side of the room is real quiet. I don't know. I feel like a teacher now. Um, Andrew, nothing? Not, not, not one word, huh? Oh, ba- okay, yeah. That ba- ba- happens more than once in the Bible. You know, you can say it twice. All right, yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a deep cut. I like that one. Yeah. Can I get one more? Oh, we got three more. Zach. Okay, seminary student, am I right? Uh, Peter, was that what you were going to say? Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, Garrett. Woman of the well. Yeah, it's water all over the place. Alan. Resurrection, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, did Claire have one? What is it? Oh, that's good. Man, this is going on for way longer than I thought it would. Zach, again? Okay. All right. That's a, as good as any to stop that, I think. So, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it's, it's rich, right? Like there's so much rich meaning to the Bible. And now, honestly, like this is something that I find compelling, even as like an objective, like, like onlooker from the outside, I think that it is impossible to look at the Bible and to look at how the Christian faith has interpreted it and not see like so much fascinating insight. Like I literally feel like all that we just talked about, we could weave together like a hundred page like literary analysis of this theme of water in the Bible. And it's really, really compelling. What's that? Oh yeah, yeah, whatever, I graduated. All right, anyways. So, uh, so today, uh, as we continue through our series on uh, the foundations of the Christian faith, we're going to talk about baptism. And I, I think baptism is probably like top five when I think of words that immediately make me think of Christianity. Like, as, like baptism has very like obvious, very Christian implications that go along to it. And I think that for anyone here who's like grown up in the faith or even spent like a significant period of time living in church world, there is uh, some, some kind of imagery, I would imagine, that pops into your head when you think of baptism. Uh, for some of you, it might be witnessing the baptism of a loved one, like seeing like a niece or a child get their baptism and how, how rich that may have felt. For some, it might be our own baptisms. Uh, and maybe even there, there's like, well, I got baptized when I was 15, and it was the first time I took my faith seriously, and it was amazing. Or maybe it's like, well, my parents pressured me into it. I got baptized at a summer camp with a water hose, and it was really awkward. And I look back on it, and I feel kind of bad. So baptism, again, it's like this, it's not a monolith. It's this big thing and concept that we're dealing with. And as you can imagine, there's a lot to talk about when we try to tap into this concept of baptism. Honestly, we could be here all night, and with the number of notes, we, we might we might get close, uh, close to sunset. We'll see. Uh, a summer sunset, too, so that's saying something. Uh, but so I, I do want to just preface this by saying there's a lot that I may say this evening that may be challenging to the framework that you may have when it comes to baptism. And I want to say, first and foremost, if that is the case, that's okay. That is perfectly okay. Because even at its core, we can recognize that 
even in the Protestant tradition, not even, a, not even considering like the Catholics or Orthodox, baptism has been a very highly debated topic for hundreds of years. And so if we walk away not being completely in line on a couple of conclusions, I don't think that should make or break any type of relationship. And I certainly don't think it should be a church splitting or, or damaging thing. Because ultimately what I want to land on is uh, this, this recurring phrase. And, and it's, it's this phrase that baptism at its core, at its heart, is a gift from God to reflect his love and his promises to his people. It's that baptism is a gift from God to reflect his love and his promises to his people. And I might say that quite a bit, and it's because I'm really trying to, you know, draw this thread to connect all of these points. Because I will also preface by saying, uh, this is going to be kind of an untraditional sermon. I tried my darndest to try to make like very clear, just like block points of like, baptism is cool. Baptism is great. Baptism is really great. Like I tried my best to do that and it just couldn't work. And what I ended up with was kind of like this Q&A format sermon where I'm basically going to ask a question and then I'm going to answer it and I'm going to ask another question and answer it. And some of these will be very brief and some of these may be a little bit longer. So I'm going to try and draw that thread of baptism is a good gift from God for his people throughout it because I don't want this to come across as scattered. Um, this may be one of those trying to drink from a fire hydrant circumstances, in which case uh, I apologize. But hey, if you guys want to chat after this, we can always chat. You know, I'm always down for a good old, good old chat. So first and foremost, first question, most important question, what is baptism? Zach? I'm just joking, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, baptism, because I mean, that is a valid question. Baptism kind of pops up out of nowhere in the Bible. Uh, you never see baptism happening in the Old Testament, and then you show up in the New Testament, and everyone's doing it, and it's like, what, where did this come from? So uh, baptism uh, essentially was, um, sorry, Baptism uh, arrived in that few hundred year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the history of the New Testament. It was essentially kind of a ritual that the Israelites would do to kind of symbolize new life. And we're, we're going to get into symbols in a bit, so, so just hold that note. But traditionally, and I'm sure if you've ever been to a baptism or experienced one, you know it can involve a full immersion into the, into the water. It can be just kind of like a grab the back of your head and dunk somebody style. There's sprinkling, there's pouring of water. But as you can imagine, the most important essential element of baptism is water. And so baptism is itself actually older than Christianity is. But I think we believe that Jesus, during his life and ministry, kind of took baptism and incorporated it as a very valuable thing for his church to utilize. So, basic intro, what is baptism? There we go. Next, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time, what does baptism symbolize? What does baptism symbolize? Now, there's a lot of answers to this question, which I think is amazing. I think it'd be really almost shallow to say, oh yeah, baptism means this. You can answer it in a single sentence. I think it's really cool that there is such a wide range, multifaceted answer. The simple answer, and we're going to complicate it very shortly, 
is that baptism is a representation for new life and that it's also a sign of God's covenant with us. So the passage that Danielle read from Colossians says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And so we've right the of baptism, which is uh, that through our baptism, we are dying, which is going into the water, and then we're coming up to new life. And so I think if someone walked away just with an understanding that like, oh, baptism is just new life, then I think that would be, that would be sufficient. And so in this passage here, we see that baptism can symbolize both life and also victory and also unity with Jesus. Just those three in that one, in that one passage alone. If we look to 1 Peter, it would complicate things even a little bit more. It would say that baptism is actually a cleansing. Like just as uh, running your water, I'm sorry, running your hands underwater, maybe after you've been outside and you've got a lot of dirt on your hands and maybe, you know, that grime under your fingernails and such. Like you're washing your hands in the water and, um, sorry. What are you talking about? Water. <laughs> Baptism. Washing your hands. Yeah. Okay. So we can already see just in the book of first, this is weird. I can't use both hands to gesture anymore. I'm like half of a person right now. Oh, I guess I'll have to use one of my legs. Um, okay. All right. So first Peter talks about the cleansing of baptism. And that is also very symbolic of the relationship with God that we have, which is that baptism is a cleansing uh, kind of symbol there. I would even add which is that the original purpose for baptism, and this is before Jesus even started doing it, was it was a remembrance for the Israelites of what it was when they were delivered out of Egypt and out of slavery into the promised land. That was the significance of the water. The water was the Red Sea. And so I would even say that on top of baptism being symbolic of life, and of victory, and of unity with Jesus, and of cleansing, I would also say that it's even a form of symbolizing victory and overcoming oppression and cruelty, which is what the Israelites experienced in Egypt. And so we can see here, there's lots of symbolic references. Even the most simplistic one is that if you look through the book of Romans, you see that the, uh, the Israelite ritual of circumcision, which was the immediate mark of the covenant, uh, was kind of replaced with baptism, which is actually really beautiful when you think about it too, because Israelites having the blessing of circumcision really only half of the Israelites could experience the mark of the covenant because circumcision is kind of a male thing. But baptism, they no longer had that issue. And so you can see lots of like really, really dense, um, really rich symbolism to this thing. And we're going to move on from here. So my next question is this, is baptism just a symbol? Is baptism just a symbol? Because I, I don't know why, but, but the word symbol just tends to kind of, 
It's like a rock in my shoe. It feels a little bit uncomfortable. It feels like it's, it's stealing a little bit of the depth here. And so the best way that I could explain this was I, was I made up an analogy. So bear with me. Uh, put yourself in these shoes for a second. Imagine you have a really, really great, close, intimate friend. And your friend tells you that they're moving away probably for two, maybe three years. And wherever they're going, they have to go completely off the grid, like no phone, no internet, no social media, not even postage. You can't even write a letter to this person. You're basically going to have no contact with them for about two or three years. Maybe this person's a CIA operative. I don't know. You know, you can fill in the blank there. But I want to open up two different scenarios. In one scenario, your, your, your friend leaves, and you're sad, and so you go on Amazon, and you buy a friendship bracelet, and you put that bracelet on, and every time you're sad about your friend being gone, you look at your bracelet, and you say, oh, that's my guy Paul, and you just kind of smile to yourself, and you think about your friend who's thousands and thousands of miles away. And now here's another scenario. The day before your friend leaves, uh, he comes to your place, or I guess he, she, whoever, uh, comes to your place and brings you a box. And inside this box are handwritten letters from them for you to read while they're gone. And like voice recordings and drawings and sketches and little doodles that just kind of like, you know, remind you of their personality a little bit. And, and some pictures of the two of you spending time together. Like, I think that is the difference of, like, calling baptism a symbol. I think, because I think ultimately we can call anything a symbol. I can grab this pen and say, this pen is a symbol of how God uses me and he holds me in his hands. And sometimes he uses me as a tool and he writes things with me. Like, like anything can be a symbol. And that's not to say that, you know, no disrespect to pens. But that is to say that symbols can kind of sometimes feel cheap and just kind of like just a little shallow. I think what I'm trying to say, especially by using this analogy about baptism, is that baptism isn't a, a, a slim kind of flimsy symbol. It's actually rich. The reason you'd feel so much happier with this box of personal belongings than you would with a friendship bracelet that you bought yourself is because there's like some DNA that this person has left with you. They're leaving you their handwriting that you can see. They're leaving you uh, pictures of their face and the sound of their voice. There's something so much more intimate and genuine about being left with something like this than just a bracelet that you can wear on your wrist, you know? And so when I think about baptism being a symbol, I can't say that it's not a symbol. Of course it is. But I think there's so much richness to it. There's so much value to it. There's so much of what I would call God's DNA through the spirit that dwells in baptism that is so such a rich blessing to us. I think that is worth considering. Uh, one of the best examples, or I'm sorry, one of the best descriptions that I ever heard for baptism, or, or even uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, was that they are the invisible love of God made visible. It's something that we can't 
physically see something that we can't tangibly lay our hands on, and it's, it's made present and visible for us. And I think that is a really rich description of how baptism is more than a symbol. All right, next question. Who is baptism for? Who is baptism for? I think um, we can go through this one kind of quickly. Uh, I think baptism is for the entire family of God. I think baptism is for all of his people. Which means that if you're maybe in this place of like, well, I've always thought about getting baptized, but I always wanted to get this thing straight first. I wanted to cut out this ugly habit first. I wanted to make sure I was doing this at church first. Then, you know, you're kind of pushing and prolonging something, I think, more than you need to. If you've put faith in Jesus, even that small little mustard seed type of faith, then you are like legitimately a member of God's family. You are welcome at his table. You are loved with a perfect and unflinching love, which means that baptism is a gift for you, and it's worth receiving that gift. This is also why there's a number of traditions in the Christian church that baptize like very young babies, infants. Okay, Zach. <laughs> It's because they believe that baptizing a child that is born to believing parents is offering, or I'm sorry, is not excluding a good gift to someone who is part of the family of God. And I know there's a lot of weird implications around like infant baptism. And I mean, obviously, if you guys have been going to mission for any period of time, this is probably your first time hearing us even talking about it. And it's because we don't have like a super hard, like if you don't, if you're not on board with this, then X, Y, and Z stance on it. It's more, it's literally something that if a family came to us and said, we would really love it if our child, if our young like infant could be baptized, we'd probably do it. Um, I think it, it definitely fits my stance, and I think Andy and even Mike might be in the same boat, but we're also not forcing that to happen. You guys know we've had baby dedications multiple times, too. Our, our goal really is to serve the parents in these situations. So I do want to just explain that. So yeah, who is baptism for? I think that summarizes it. Do I need to get baptized to be saved? Do I need to get baptized to be saved? So here's a sticky answer. The short and easy answer is no. However, I do want to just do justice to the scriptures that say, if you read through the book of Acts and through several of the epistles, there are a lot of very close connections to those same types of words that would indicate someone has started faith in Jesus, where it would say something like, repent and be baptized, or believe and be baptized, or uh, this man confessed Jesus and then he and his whole household were baptized. So I definitely would not say that you need to be baptized to get saved because I think that we stand pretty comfortably on there are no works that we do to earn our salvation. Um, that's kind of the heart of recognizing this is the work of God and not the work of ourselves. But I would say that there's enough closeness in that connection in scripture that it, it would be something I would not neglect. It'd be something that I wouldn't neglect for sure. Here's my next question. Should I get re-baptized? 
Should I get re-baptized? Here's a story about my life real quick. I um, started going to church when I was about eight with my dad and with my older sister. Um, We were going pretty casually. Literally the only memory I have of going to church between, of, of when I first started going to church and when I got baptized was that I would fall asleep in church every single Sunday. I remember one of the first weeks I went to church, I was sitting in the very back of the balcony and I would literally smack my head against the back wall because I was just really, really bored. Um, which, you know, it's not, not flattering. But when I was 10, uh, the opportunity came up to get baptized. I'm sure some dude was like, hey, John, do you want to get baptized? And I was like, sure. And I can tell you right now, I did not really understand the Bible or the gospel or what uh, it meant to truly have faith in Jesus when I got baptized. But I did. I, uh, I put on a big white robe, and I stood in a very, very cold baptismal, and in a church that I think was predominantly African Seventh-day Adventists, I got baptized. Then, when I was in college, I started going to a, a different church, and they asked me, John, have you been baptized before? And I said, yes, when I was 10, and it was cold. And they said, uh... Well, but when, when did you become a believer? And I said, well, I mean, I, I, was, I was around Christianity for most of my life, but I don't feel like I really understood who Jesus was until I was about 15. I think that's when I would say that I became a Christian. And they said, okay, that means you need to get baptized again. And I said, okay. And so um, I don't think I wore the robe this time. It was a different, different getup. The water was much nicer. Um, but I invited my family. Some members from my church came out. A couple other people in my community were there. I held a microphone. I gave my testimony. And I got baptized for a second time. And if you're asking me what I think about getting rebaptized, I would say this you most likely shouldn't. You most likely shouldn't get rebaptized, and here's why. When we look at baptism, as we have attempted to do so this evening, the main ground that I'm trying to build on is this understanding that God is the initiator of every good covenant that he has built with his people. That Baptism is the story of the faithfulness and goodness of God. And I had to reflect and think, I'm standing here today, not not as a dude with a microphone, not as a church guy. I'm standing here today as an incredibly flawed young person still striving to seek out the face of Jesus and still placing every ounce of faith that I can muster in him to walk as a believer. If that's true about me, then that means that when I was 10 years old in that ice-cold water chest, getting baptized by a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists, that God has been faithful to me since then. That God's faithfulness did not shake even while I did several times, you know. So that's kind of where I stand
on, bat, on re-baptism. Because people, people have asked before, and I'll, I'll, hear, I'll hear this statement often, well, John, I, I, was, uh, I was young when I got baptized, and I fell off. I was living really, really recklessly. I was doing some things I'm not proud of, and I'm back in church, and I want to show God that I'm serious now. And I want to show God that I really want to recommit myself to him. And I think that the ground, once again, that we're building on when we understand baptism is the faithfulness that is so significant in a baptism is not ours. It's God's. If you are sitting here today as someone who tries and fails but tries to love Jesus? I don't care if you were baptized when you were 15 because you were pressured at a summer camp with a water hose, or if you got baptized as a baby in a Catholic church, or if you got baptized as a 40-year-old theology professor. If you're still here today, striving And seeking the face of Jesus, it means that God's faithfulness to you has not shaken. And that you're still here. You're still home. These are, even if we look back, even if we look back at everything that initiated all all those symbols that we spent like an hour going through a few minutes ago, how many of those were works of the people and how many were the works of God? I did not wash my hands of sin. That was the work of God. I did not raise Jesus from the dead. That was the work of God. I couldn't even deliver Israel from Egypt. They couldn't even deliver themselves. That was an act of God. When the covenant happened in the time of Israel, it was literally performed by a community to a little baby. That baby couldn't put the mark of the covenant on himself. All of these things, they're all remembrances of the goodness and faithfulness of God to give new life to his people. We don't need to paint new life on our shirts and wear it every day. God has given it to us. He has imprinted it in the DNA that is inside of ourselves. We don't need to write it down like it's going to make a difference. God has started that. His faithfulness is strong. So my last question is, who cares? That's honestly probably the most that I wanted, the the thing that I wanted to talk about the most. Who cares? It's baptism. It's a ritual. It's a ceremony. It's just a thing. You stand in a tank. You fall in some water, everyone claps, angels dance, whatever. It's, it's just a religious ceremony, right? Here's my response to that. We th- think of the story of the prodigal son. Most of us know it, but for those who don't, I'm going to tell it. There's a wealthy man who has two sons, and both of his sons have estates and... Uh, inheritances, which would basically make it so they could live very, very comfortably after their father dies. The young son is reckless. He's a, you know, little angsty. He says, dad, I want my inheritance now. I want to live the way I want to, and I just won't get anything when you die. That's fine. 
father says, okay, here's your money, son. Son leaves his father's home, travels to whatever foreign lands. We don't even know how long the guy's gone for. Could be a couple weeks, could have been decades. But he goes off, he lives recklessly, he blows all of his money. And uh, pretty soon he's completely broke, living in poverty. And he's thinking, I bet the servants at my dad's house eat better than I do. And so he packs his bags, whatever bags he has, and he uh, goes back to his dad's house and he thinks, I, if I, I, I bet my dad would never let me be just his son again, but I bet he'd let me be his servant and maybe I can work my way back to favor. He starts walking towards father's house. I just imagine this like long, like kind of, you know, snaky driveway. His dad sees him out the window, kicks the door open, runs full speed. I always imagine like the dad is like a pretty hefty dude. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like a younger Santa Claus. I don't know. Maybe like 45 to 50 year old Santa Claus, just like a big, jolly, lovely looking guy. And he runs and he embraces his son and he kisses him on the neck and he gives him this huge, massive hug. And he welcomes him back. He doesn't say, all right, now clean my shoes, servant. <laughs> like, he immediately welcomes him back as the son that he always has been. He didn't have to re-sign paperwork. He didn't have to go to the local town hall and say, hey, could you uh, make this guy my tax dependent again? He was always his son. He never lost that. And when he returned back to him, the only thing his father had to say was, welcome home. And then the father says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate this, and I want to celebrate my son coming back to life. Metaphorically, but still with significance. Now imagine if the son was like, oh, great, another party. <sighs> imagine if the son was like, I mean, shoot. Like, so, okay, so dad, if I don't do the party, do I have to leave again? Or can I just like, can I stay in my room the whole time? Or can we like, I mean, we're talking in a couple weeks, right? Like not tonight. I mean, imagine planning this for tonight. Come on, dad, be reasonable. Like the father is trying to express the great love that he has for his child by throwing a massive celebration. It's not even in question. It's not even a question in the story whether the son chooses to receive it or not. And so, I mean, I, I think that when we get down to this idea of, well, who, who cares? And I, I get it. Like, culturally, I understand. I think that we're in a place where we uh, really, really emphasize the relational aspect of Christianity I think that, you know, that whole, what is it, that spoken word dude from like 2012, who, it's, not a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, which I understand. I understand why that, why that thought process exists. But I think sometimes what happens is we get so infatuated in the relational aspect between us and God that we assume that anything that looks too religious is going to be cold and it's just going to get in the way. But I think that would be like saying, Dad, I don't want to have a party. I just want to be here and know that I'm your son. And the father would say, because you're my son and because I love you, 
I want to throw this party and I want to kill the fattest lamb and I want your brother to call up all the people and, and we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a great time. Like it's an expression of love. And I think sometimes we get a little cautious around these types of ceremonial things because we don't see them as love, but in reality they are. They're enriching the relationship, not standing in the way. And I think it's important to remember that the heart of baptism is always meant to reflect the good news of the gospel, to reflect the good news of a loving God who is giving us new life. And so I think that we can learn to see that in it. We can see that blessing. As we've mentioned many times in church, whenever God calls us to look backwards, he's also calling us to look forwards at the same time. We can look back on Israel being rescued from their Egyptian slaveholders, and we can look forward to a time where all of God's people would be delivered from every form of oppression and slavery and, and misery. We can look back on Jesus dying on a cross with a crown of thorns around his head, and we can look forward to Jesus triumphantly with a crown of glory coming to restore and heal the world. And I believe that through our baptism, we can look back on the taste of new life that we received there, that blessing from the Holy Spirit, and we can look forward to when new life is not just that small taste, but it's covering not just ourselves, but all of creation in glory. So as we close, let's consider that glimpse that God has given us. It's, it's, it's great because we're, we're transitioning from reflecting on the glimpse of baptism to this, this next glimpse we're literally tasting just a bite of bread and just a few drops of wine or grape juice as a way of reflecting forwards to the time when we would dine with Jesus and we would reflect and look and see the glory covering the earth as all of creation is healed and the foundation of God taking care of his people and doing right would really come to pass. So let's look forward to that. Let's look forward to that time when our time with Jesus will be guided not just by faith, but also by sight. Until that day comes. So for right now, uh, we're going to go into a time of brief confession. Um, I will kind of start us off and then we'll have two minutes of silence. This is your time to just speak with God before approaching the table. Um, obviously, it's got confession in the title, but I would say just, just speak to God whatever things he may be communicating with you, but also whatever things you may need to communicate with him. Whatever areas in which maybe you didn't actively oppose God, but maybe you didn't seek him out either. Just ways that you can confess and then when we come back from it, we're, we're not going to sit in that feeling of grossness, but we're going to actually come out of it and immediately remember that the response that God has to our confession is forgiveness 
and restoration. So there should be a comfort in knowing that we can confess our sins to God, knowing that he is quick and prompt to heal and forgive us. So we're going to have our two minutes of confession. Uh, We'll come up and receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, I've never mentioned this out loud before, but if you, uh, I'm going to assume that you are going to take the bread and the wine, but if there's anything else, just feel free to gesture or, you know, give me the finger or, no, okay, don't give me the finger, but um, however you'd like to gesture, whatever it is you need, that would be great, because I'm certainly not trying to poison any of our gluten-free friends or anything like that. And then Mike will lead us in uh, musical worship. And then there is uh, the worship of giving, which we have a tablet in the back. We would uh, just strongly encourage you uh, to just support what we're doing here at Mission. As you can imagine, uh, none of this exists for free, which is awkward to say out loud. But unfortunately, yeah, we, uh, we need that in order to just keep, to keep, uh, keep allowing my, people like myself and Mike and Andy, but also people like Milena and Juliet who do our child care. Like, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And if you could give to support that, that would be a blessing to all of us and to the community itself. So let me start our uh, confession prayer. Heavenly Father, um, God, thank you for the opportunity where I just kind of felt feel like you pulled back the curtain a little and allowed me to just gaze a little bit deeper into this thing as baptism. Um, ultimately, Father, we know that like you are the one who is holding our the, the, the covenant that keeps us alive. But really, God, you are holding us. You are the most sturdy, trustworthy um, person we could ever hope to lean on. And we pray that we would explore more of the beauty that you just hold. And that in doing so, you would guide and sanctify and bless our lives. Like, just put energy and, like, just feeling into our bones as we, as we work and as we relate with people and as we love and as we communicate and as we think about the news and all these things. Like, please, like, let this, like, little seed sapling of baptism just grow over us. Like, help us to grow into you. And for now, help us to grow by confession. Help us to grow by humbling ourselves to recognize that our week or our day or our hour probably wasn't as hot as it should have been. And uh, there's room for us to recognize our imperfections and the areas that we failed and the areas maybe we just tried and missed. So I pray that you would just help us to explore our hearts to see that and also that you would comfort us and know that because of the sacrifice and the love of Jesus, those sins are covered. Those sins are cast away, and we can have new life again. So, uh, yeah, help us to pray now, Father.